Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. All right, and Alex, today we have three stories, uh, two of them that you reported. Yeah, me and indie reporter Carly Savageo headed all the way out to Fallon to cover the Cantaloupe Festival, and there was tons of melons. <laughs> lots to lots to try. I'm sure we'll, we'll hear more about that in that piece. But after that, we have an excerpt from an event that we held in Las Vegas called Plight of Local News, where we interviewed a documentarian and also the newsroom that the documentary was about. Yeah, and then I had a little roundtable with Janelle Calderon and John Ralston about Latino voters here in Nevada. Cantaloupe ice cream. Yeah, it's the best. And then second is the cantaloupe daiquiri. Oh, that's what I have. Yes, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Everybody does so good um, bringing their cantaloupe treats. Cantaloupe ice cream, cantaloupe daiquiris, and even cantaloupe salsa. Anything cantaloupe imaginable, you can find it in Fallon at the Fallon Cantaloupe Festival, which expects about 15,000 visitors each year. And I'm here with reporter Carly Savageau. And we were actually lucky enough to get to go to the festival this year. Try some sweet treats, some nice cantaloupe treats. <laughs> <laughs> So we've come across our first cantaloupe product, and they have cantaloupe protein shakes and cantaloupe tea. Yes. But I don't think I'm going to... Are we going to try that? Um, I think I'm going to wait for the cantaloupe daiquiris. We're waiting for the daiquiris and maybe, like, um, ice cream. Yes. Yeah. So as me and Carly were on this mission to find cantaloupe snacks, we actually ran into cantaloupe festival treasurer Angela Golthree, yeah, Alex, and she's been volunteering for the festival for two years. Seeing everybody walk out the door smiling, cantaloupes, ice cream, this is huge for our community. I mean, I think almost every hotel room is sold out. People come from Carson, Tahoe, Oregon. And so if you are one of these people, as Angela mentioned, that is visiting from out of town, you'll realize that Fallon is pretty small with a population of just over 9,300 people. And it is 60 miles east of Reno. And so on the day of the festival, me and Carly, we get in the car and we drive all the way to Fallon. And when we get there, we learn there's actually this specific breed of cantaloupe known as the Heart of Gold that is said to have its beginnings in Churchill County. And that is what this festival celebrates. It was in 1911, farmer O.J. Fanoy began crossbreeding seeds, and this experiment actually produced cantaloupes with a harder rind that was ideal for shipping to the eastern United States during that time period. And so then this, like, melon craze kind of exploded, and more than 44 cantaloupe farms were started in Fallon and nearby Fernley. The cantaloupe lives on in Fallon, as we saw at this festival, and we came across a couple Fallon farmers ourselves, and one of them is a melon farmer named Wade Workman. Oh, God, the process of growing cantaloupe starts in May, or even a little bit earlier for some people. Wade, who's been a melon farmer in Fallon since he was just 15 years old. Explain to us how he picks the best melon. And all of our melons are picked vine ripe, so that's 90% of it. And in a watermelon, you want a good ring and 
some of the yellow canaries and stuff we have. You look at that deep color, and if they go too far, it's just as bad for me. But some of the old time, really like them really musky and gone too far past. I like them firm and light and crisp and, and just that real sweet flavor. But it's kind of like, you know, running a restaurant, you got to know what the person like, rare, medium, or raw. After our talk with Wade, I did buy a lovely honeydew melon and, of course, a cantaloupe from him. And then me and Carly were off to pet some goats. Yeah, Alex, and those goats loved eating my pants. <laughs> <laughs> they were. We walked in there and they were just, yeah, all up on ya. And then when the goats were done munching on Carly, right outside of the petting area, we found another Fallon farmer. So we're sitting here with, what is your name? Mickey Lacka. I raise alfalfa and hay and, and red Angus cross cattle. This year's been a bumper year because of all the rain in the spring. So talking about water, I mean, it is pretty interesting that there's this cantaloupe festival in the middle of the Nevada desert, right? Yeah, actually, the bulk of Fallon's water comes from an intermediate aquifer beneath Lake Lahontan. So it's actually reliant off the Carson River and irrigation systems that derive water from the Carson and Truckee Rivers. Water is, I mean, to be honest, everything. So if it's a drought year, like a super bad year, the risk is too valuable and you just can't take it too much loss. And the average muskmelon needs one to two inches, or about a full gallon plus a quarter gallon per square foot of land, of water a week. So definitely these farmers on drought years are facing big uphill challenges. And Wade actually told us that one year he decided not to grow melons at all. But this year was different. We did good, you know, so that's it's just uh, you never know what you're going to get in the process it's a battle all the way but we got it done so we held the festival this year we had melons to the end so we're happy about that yeah wade was really happy with the harvest this year and the festival itself means a lot to him and his family and angela guthrie the treasurer for the fallon cantaloupe festival she actually ran us through the process that goes behind setting up and preparing for this awesome festival that means so much for so many people I think we had 200 volunteers just to work here for the last three days. That doesn't include the board, um, which I sit on. We spend all year. We, we meet every single month. We probably spend 20 hours every month up until three months before, and then we're meeting every week. And I'm, between all of us, probably 40 hours a week worth of work every week. And for Nikki Lathis, the alfalfa farmer we spoke to, all the effort that goes into planning this festival is worth it for his grandkids, who were all running and playing around him as we were interviewing. The kids and the people and what they get to see, they get to experience a little bit more of what agriculture is about. Maybe it can educate them a little bit as far as all that goes. After trying all of those sweet treats and learning so much about cantaloupe and the community of Fallon, me and Carly were humbled when Nikki reminded us of what the heart of the festival was really about. Just plain cantaloupe to me is good with a little salt on it, you know. Just, yeah, you know, plain is good stuff for me. got a few excerpts from an event that we held in Las Vegas on September 13th 
called The Plight of Local News. This event was a screening of For the Record, which is a documentary about a struggling small-town newspaper in Canadian Texas. The town's name is Canadian, and it's in Texas, and has a population of a little over 2,200. The paper is called The Canadian Record. The documentary focuses on that paper, which suspended publication in March because the editor and publisher Lori Ezel Brown was looking to sell it and was just burned out. The paper still publishes online from time to time, but Lori said that she was tired and wanted to spend time with her family, and she's struggled to find someone to buy the paper. There was a deal that fell through, and you'll hear Lori talk about that some. The documentary was screened before a discussion with our CEO, John Ralston, talking with the director and producer of the documentary, Heather Courtney, and Lori Izel Brown, the publisher and editor. Also on the panel was Evan Smith, formerly the CEO of the Texas Tribune, and now a senior advisor at the Emerson Collective, a philanthropic group, and a donor to the Nevada Independent. In these short excerpts from the hour-long conversation, you'll mostly hear from Lori Izel Brown about the Canadian record. If you want to hear the full discussion, you can find it on the Nevada Independence YouTube channel by searching Indie Talks, The Plight of Local News. And this is a bit of a departure from our normal news coverage to pull back the curtain and talk about and listen to people in local news about how important it is and how difficult the industry can be to stay afloat in. The smaller the town, the bigger the vacuum is, actually. It, it's more personal. Everything about the Canadian record in Canadian Texas is personal. People don't talk about it. They don't say the newspaper. They say my newspaper, our newspaper. They have ownership in it. And believe me, they'll let you know when they're not pleased with what you're doing. And it, it, it's so personal that, I mean, when my dad when my dad was editor, he said, you know, he believed that his desk should be at the very front of the office, right inside the front door, because when somebody had something to say to him, if they had an opinion that they wanted to express, they should have the ability to do it. They should walk in the door and say what they had to say. And it, it's not the easiest place to sit and write, but it certainly is. I mean, we're accessible to the public. We're part of the community. We're part of the heartbeat, we're part of daily life. So its absence is felt deeply. Well, to tell, tell us what the status is. I think people, some people are wondering uh, by the end of the film, what, what's happened? Well, the hardest part of that movie is when I say you can't quit. Um, because I did. Um, I ran into more than I could handle and um, we had a sale that fell through, and it's a long, sad story, but actually probably it deserved, that sale deserved not to happen. I, ultimately, I canceled it. I called it off. But we also got hit with a lawsuit the same week, and uh, I realized at some point I was losing my employees. I was working all the time. I was not feeling great. Um, I aged many, many years in that film. <laughs> um, and, and I, um, couldn't fight a lawsuit too and, uh, get a paper out. And so I, we suspended publication in the first week of March. We are a microcosm. And I've, I've found, I've found that more profoundly in recent years than ever. And it's something I want to write about a lot. In fact, I'd like to write a book about something that has to do with that. But we are a microcosm. 
and you can take things that happen right there in Canadian and you can expand that out to a larger scale. And and that's that's that idea of having common ground, but finding a larger view or a larger, the larger scope. Um, so I don't know how to say it better than that, but it's very important to me because I think all these things are connected and everything I see happening in my town, I see the implications, the larger implications. I'm just going to say the revenue model has to change the old I hate to say it, but a lot of our small businesses are dying, too, because big box stores, Amazon, I mean, you know, those businesses are dying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can fight for them all you want, but they're going away. And that used to those used to be our advertisers. So we had to find other ways to bring in money. And we started getting sponsors for different features that we did. We, at some point, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had a rancher in our town who wrote a letter to the editor one week and said, I'm worried about our newspaper. They do a good job. We want to keep our newspaper. I'm writing a check and I'm sticking it in a bank account. And I hope you'll do the same. And I was astonished at how, how many how, people. How much got uh, raised by this? Um it was probably $30,000. I mean, it kept us alive during a Amazing. very difficult time. And this is an old rancher who probably doesn't agree with my politics either. But he he valued the newspaper. He valued the work we did. And he contributed. So that may be another model that we're going to have to depend on, that small newspapers are going to have to depend on at some point. So I, I think everything's in flux. I think how we produce a newspaper, I think what a newspaper is and how it's defined and how it looks and how it feels, all of that's going to change. In my lifetime, I've reinvented how the newspaper is done so many times. I mean, it would make your head spin. I, you know, when I was packing up, when I thought we were going to sell, I was packing up things that just had laid around and the detritus of, you know, years of newspapering. And I had this box of cords, you know, several generations of things that plugged in and that I couldn't even tell you what they did anymore. It, the, the variety of just plugs was astonishing. So We've changed over and over. We, we had a dark room, then we went to digital images. I mean, we've changed everything. We've evolved, and newspapers will continue to evolve. And I hope the next generation that comes in, if, if newspapers still exist, they're going to find other ways to do it. I have a young man who came to the office one day and said, hey, I want to, I have some ideas. And gave me all kinds of suggestions and said, I want to help with it. And I'm still trying to get back to him and we're going to work on some different ideas and I don't know where it'll go. But I don't see newspaper people as being stuck in the mud or this is the way we're always going to do it. I mean, we have reinvented 
We have re reinvented ourselves so many times, and I have no doubt we'll do it many more times before we're gone. All right, so September 15th started Hispanic Heritage Month. So next week, we're actually going to be having a whole segment just dedicated to that month. But this week, we thought we could get it started by talking about Latino voters here in Nevada. So generally, I think people tend to think of Latino voters as this monolith or as like this one single group of voters that are for sure going to vote a certain way. But today we have reporter Janelle Calderon with us, and we're being graced with Indie CEO John Ralston to talk to us about how maybe that's not really true. So, John, is a Latino voter block a monolith? No, and that, that is one of the great misunderstandings of the Hispanic vote, I think, and it's really changing the dynamic now, and it's one of the explanations of why uh, Hispanics may be moving not in great numbers, but in significant numbers enough away from the Democratic Party, which here in Nevada has counted on the Hispanics to vote for Democrats since the explosion of the Hispanic population began in this state. And is there a specific way that Latinos tend to vote? Uh, it's not about 30 percent of the entire population can be up to 20% of the electorate, which is obviously hugely significant. Hispanics generally do favor the Democratic candidate, and the Republicans don't think that they have the majority of the Hispanics. But if they can get close to 40% of the Hispanic vote uh, in any given election, that's a real problem for the Democrats. And they've especially been harnessed by the Culinary Union, uh, which is the Democratic Party's main turnout organization, and more than half of the Culinary Union is Hispanic. And they're not all registered. They don't all vote. But the Culinary has run programs to really drive the Hispanic vote and is probably, if not uh, a main reason, the reason that Catherine Cortez Masto, the first Latina ever elected to the U.S. Senate, survived last time. And because of that, how have we seen Republicans approach to win over Latino voters. What's interesting, and, and you know this as, as well as anybody, Janelle, it's not like Hispanics think so differently than other groups, right? They care about jobs and the economy and providing health care for their family and, and inflation and higher prices. And there's been this kind of one-dimensional look at the Hispanic vote, oh, immigration must be the top issue. And as you know, it's not always uh, the top issue. And one of the reasons the Hispanics have started to fall away a little bit from the Democrats is because I think two reasons. One is the feeling of being taken for granted by the Democratic Party. And secondly, just all of these concerns about the economy and about the well-being of their families and there is also a conservative element to the Hispanic population. They can be very Catholic. The Cuban immigrants generally are more conservative than, than, than the Mexican immigrants, even though there's many fewer of them. When you have a state that is as purple as we are and have such close races up and down the ticket, uh, that can make a difference. And I think this episode we're doing is a lot about all the different identities that exist within the Hispanic community and, and cultures. It makes sense that 
it's not just this one group voting all the same way. What's interesting too, and, and, and Janelle can speak to this maybe as well, is that suddenly out of the blue, a few cycles ago, Republicans started advertising on Spanish media, started buying ads in Spanish language publications. And suddenly it's like they woke up and discovered, uh-oh, you know, Hispanics are a force in, 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 in the electorate. We better find a way to start to peel some of them away. And they made mainly economic arguments, as I uh, rem remember it. It's a kind of a nationalized campaign. They've spent a significant amount of money now on Spanish language media. Uh, Adam Laxalt in the Senate race spent a, a lot of money on Spanish language media. Uh, he at one point claimed he had 50% of the Hispanic vote, which was, of course, laughable, but they made a real play for it. Lombardo, the, the, the new governor, did it much more surgically and I, and I think more thoughtfully to try to peel away more independent Hispanic voters. It, it, in one way, it's nice to be wanted, uh, on the other hand, as I mentioned earlier, I think the Democrats have to be very, very concerned that some parts of the Hispanic base think they've been taken for granted and pandered to, and they only talk about immigration and the Republicans are bad on immigration and borderline racist and we care about you. I, I think that's all noise to a lot of Hispanics at this point. It's funny you mentioned party loyalty, John, because that's one of the struggles. Like they might be registered one way, but vote a different way. There's no way to predict it. It could be just how they're feeling that day or who actually approached them on the street. If someone approached them and say like, hey, this person cares about you, they could feel more inclined to vote that way. It's been pointed out to me too, Janelle, that a lot of Hispanic immigrants come from places where they didn't trust the government, didn't trust the political system. And so they have that orientation going in. And so you can't just give them the, the ordinary uh, political argument because they may not believe you. And don't forget that also there's been this explosion of independent voters in Nevada. And a percentage of those, I don't think anyone is quite sure, are also Hispanics who are either being automatically registered at the DMV as independents or have said, I don't like either of these two major parties. They're not doing anything for me. I'm going to become an independent. And how the parties decide to message to these disaffected groups, including Hispanics, is the key to elections now in, in Nevada. Is there anything else you'd like to add, John or Janelle? Yes, I would just have to add that we matter. That's what I like to hear. The two best words you can ever say about Nevada politics. Thank you for listening to this episode of Vindy Matters. We want to thank Carly Savajo, Lori Zell Brown, John Ralston, and Janelle Calderon for being on the show today. This show was produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, along with Alex Kuro, and we had additional help from Michelle Rendells. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at the Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And we'll talk to you next week. Next week.